Hi, um, I'm Lydia, and it's been my joy to be part of Moreland's for the last five years. Um, today we'll be reading from Philippians, um, and we'll be reading from chapter 2, verses 1 to 11, which you can find on page 1179. So I'll give you a moment to find that. Starting at verse 1. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than ourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place And gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Good morning. Thank you, Lydia. We all long to be part of a group of people with similar interests. That's why we have so many clubs and organizations and associations and political parties and affiliations and on and on. We find encouragement in being part of a community of like-minded people, the people that share the same thing, whether that's being a better parent, being a stronger athlete, working together for a common goal, is something that unites us, and it's great to belong. Church is also a community to belong to, but as a church, we must ask ourselves, why do we gather? Is it just our natural instinct to belong, or is it the fact that most of us live in the Lancaster area or work here? That's part of it, I'm sure, but if we dig deeper, What brings us together, not just here on Sundays, but week after week, throughout the the week? What causes us to share our lives and suffering with each other? What motivates us to love and care for one another, even though we come from different backgrounds and likely have different hobbies? What persuades many of us to call Lancaster home and reorder our entire lives around being at Moreland's leaving loved ones behind and dear places. In other words, what is so special about church? 
if you think about it, the pandemic gave us the best excuse not to meet up. It was not safe or legal to do so, but we still made the effort to connect virtually or from a distance, even if it felt artificial at times. And here we are back again in the same room and determined to keep coming back. Why? I'd like to suggest to you that the church is unique and that that's the reason why we keep coming back and keep gathering. There's nothing like the church, not your sports club, not your literary society, not your local volunteer organization, not even your group of best friends. No community in its composition and significance can resemble the church. The church goes beyond personal or common interest. Its purpose is much bigger than any individual or collective effort. At the surface level, it looks like we are just a community of believers, perhaps not different from any other faith community. But what I want to try and convince you of is that what binds us and the reason why we gather is nothing but extraordinary. And if you see that, when you see that, when you understand what is so special about church, not only will you want to belong to church, but hopefully you'll also realize why it's extremely important to keep the unity of the church. So important is this unity that the Apostle Paul is writing to the Philippian church about how to maintain it. We've seen from our study in chapter 1 over the last two weeks, Paul's emphasis on the gospel and how the gospel stands as the cornerstone on which we should build and structure our lives. He spoke of defending and confirming the gospel in verse 7, advancing the gospel, verse 12, proclaiming the gospel without fear, verse 14, preaching Christ in every way in all circumstances, verse 18. This is what our whole lives should revolve around. And now, Paul is urging the Philippians to draw unity from the gospel. So let's look at that closely under the first heading on your notice sheet, Be of One Mind. And then we'll see whose mind Paul is talking about and how that leads to unity. Chapter 2, verse 1. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Here, Paul is picking up on his earlier message to stand firm and strive together as one for the sake of the gospel. And he expounds on that by introducing a long if-then statement. He describes four conditions that captures blessings and experiences derived from the gospel. And he uses those conditions to compel the church to act as a united body. So let, let's look at those conditions in order. First, it's encouragement from being united with Christ. That is, being in Christ, belonging to Christ, and following in his footsteps is seen as the grounds for encouragement. The Philippians see, in, see that Paul is in prison after he was imprisoned once before in their city, and maybe that caused them anxiety. But they know Paul very well, and they knew that Paul wasn't in prison because he committed a crime or he broke the law. So could it be Paul's preaching that got him in jail? Could what Paul was preaching and what the Philippians believed and advanced be the reason for his imprisonment? If so, 
you can see why that causes the Philippians to suffer and have anxiety. They didn't want to end up in prison. But rather than dismiss their suffering, Paul extracts encouragement from it. He connects his and their suffering to the suffering of Christ. Jesus told his disciples that no servant is greater than his master. And as he suffered to bring about God's will, they can expect to suffer in the same vein. The glorious thing is that in their suffering, Jesus' disciples are united with Christ and are becoming more like him. And that's a huge encouragement, considering that that's what their new life is all about. But finding encouragement from sharing in Christ's suffering is not a dry or mechanical matter. That's why Paul points to God's love as the second condition for unity. It's out of love that the Father engages the Philippians in the suffering of Christ. And as he does, he envelops them with his compassion and with his tenderness. And we know what that feels like, whether it's the sense of heavenly peace and inner peace that God and only God provides, or being embraced by a community of people with genuine love towards one another. What is real is that the Philippians have been comforted by God's love, even during hard times. Paul knows it, they know it, and we know it because we experienced it. And having that in common should persuade us that as a church to function together in unison. Thirdly, Paul bases his appeal to unity on one more thing, fellowship with the Spirit. After referring to comfort that flows from the Father's love and encouragement from being in Christ, Paul now calls on the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. This is the Spirit that unites believers with Christ. It's the Holy Spirit through whom we understand and come to receive God's love. By the Spirit, therefore, Christians are united to Christ and in Christ to one another. Thanks to the Holy Spirit, the Philippians and the Christians, more broadly speaking, are all partners in God's gospel work. Whatever our personal differences, we have a common mission. And that's sufficient to help us behave as one in spirit and purpose. Finally, Paul adds one last condition to his if statement, if any tenderness and compassion. Having appealed to the blessings and experiences delivered by members of the Godhead, Paul now concludes by appealing to the personal relationship that he has with the Philippians. This is the visceral, gut-wrenching compassion that Joe spoke of two weeks ago. Paul knows these people very well. He founded the church there and visited more than once. He loved them dearly. Remember, he says that he has them in his heart. And there's no doubt that they shared the same feelings towards Paul as well. He was the one that brought them the gospel, and they were eternally grateful. They loved Paul and were concerned for him. In fact, part of the reason why Paul is writing this letter is to thank the Philippians for supporting him financially when no other church did. And so by referencing the tenderness and compassion that characterizes their relationship, Paul is touching a soft spot. But he's not manipulating their feelings. He's not manipulating their feelings. Rather, he's speaking to their heart as he spoke to their mind. So four preconditions, put them together, and you get a strong case for unity based on comfort and love. 
delivered by God, expressed by Christ and the Spirit, and shared mutually by believers. As a church, there are many things that could divide us. What type of songs we sing, where we spend church funds, how we, spend, how we respond to the needs around us. But whatever our differences are, they all pale in comparison to what we have in common through the gospel of Christ. In verse 2, Paul tells us in more details what he means by being united. But first, he inserts another personal sentiment. He says, if you've received the blessings and shared in the experiences that the gospel affords, then make my joy complete by being like-minded. We've already seen that Paul, although he's in prison, he's in a state of rejoicing because he knows that his imprisonment led to the gospel being widespread. And so Paul is not writing from a lowly state. He's not writing looking for someone to cheer him up. Paul has his eyes on the gospel. He wants the gospel to be preached throughout the world. And he's looking for his gospel partners for help with that. Seeing that happen would make him very ecstatic. And he can say that to the Philippians because of the special relationship that they have. He knows they care for him and would make the effort to be united, even if it's just to make him happy. But Paul has something deeper in mind. The joy of seeing the gospel spread is something he knows the Philippians aspire to as well. So Paul is saying, make my joy complete, as in work together to make the gospel widely known. That will make me very happy, and I'm sure it will make you very happy as well. And the key to make the gospel widely known is to be like-minded. This is the main idea here. This is what Paul has been setting the stage for, to be like-minded. So what does that mean, to be like-minded? Does it mean that we all must have the same opinion about things? Does it mean that we all must read the same books or shop at the same stores or have the same living standards? That can't be. God created us with different personalities and we go through different circumstances. That ought to produce different people. And it's not possible for us to live identical lives. By being like-minded, Paul simply means having the same mindset, the same perspective, the same vantage point. For the sake of the gospel, Paul is calling us to have the same attitude towards life and towards others. The emphasis is on oneness. Make my joy complete by having the same mind, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. In other words, since we received God's unchanging love through God's one spirit, that should unite us and enable us to love one another in ways that overlook our differences and maintain unity. That's what the gospel does. And that's what the gospel produces. It unites us and compels us to stay united for a purpose that is bigger than any one of us. Think of an orchestra as an illustration. 50 or 60 instruments each make different sounds, but the music that they produce collectively is much more beautiful and majestic than what any instrument can produce on its own. And the only way for the musicians to produce those beautiful melodies and rhythms is if they're all following or they're all reading from the same music sheet. The composer provides specific notes for each musician to play. 
there's no room for improvisation. When the music scores are followed, when musicians are all looking at the same source for guidance, you get beautiful harmonies. We can say that musicians are like-minded or of one mind. They are united through following the same music sheet. The violinist or cello player have the freedom to play any note they want. But they know that if they deviate from the gospel that unites them, from that music sheet, they will undermine the entire orchestra and ruin the musical experience. In a similar way, Paul is calling us to keep looking at the gospel. The gospel gives life. The gospel gave us life. It's what brought us together in the first place, and it's the only thing that could keep us united forever. The gospel then unites us, but we have to maintain that unity. To do that, we have to do what we learned last week, conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Like musicians in a band, we must have the discipline to follow the music sheet and play our part. The trouble is that not everybody is happy with their role. Not everybody is happy with their part, which explains why Paul says in verse 3, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vague conceit. Not, everyone, not everybody wants to adopt the same mindset. And Paul identifies two reasons why that's the case. First, selfish ambition, which is like personal gain at the expense of others. It's doing what pleases you and doing what pleases you without considering how that impacts others or the, the collective. It's the self-centered message of our modern society. Focus on yourself. You are the center of the universe. Make sure that your comfort and, and priorities are met first. Sorry. If you care for a few people and look after them and look after their interest, that's a bonus. But don't sweat it. The important thing is that you thrive and your ambitions are fulfilled. That's how the world wants us to believe and behave. To return to our orchestra analogy, it's like the flute player, for instance, deciding to suddenly play different notes to what is assigned to him. He thinks he can improve the piece or get a chance to shine, but he distracts other musicians and ruins the entire performance just to show off his skills. That's selfish ambition. And we're tempted to do the same when we underestimate, when we, when we underestimate others. We think, our, we think our priorities and concerns are more important than theirs. This leads to us to act in a way that disregards people's worth and their interests. And Paul is alerting us to the danger of selfish ambition because it puts cracks in our unity and causes harms to the gospel. The other factor that threatens gospel unity is vain conceit. Vain conceit literally means empty glory or bragging when you have nothing to brag about. It's arrogance. It's about doing things to get others' attention or getting undeserved recognition. In church, where there is diversity of people but unity of purpose, people acting out of vain conceit want to stand out. They want to shine. Allow me to use the orchestra analogy one last time and to pick on the same flute player. <laughs> Not only does he determine to deviate from the music sheet in front of him and do a flute solo, 
but he does a horrible job at it. <laughs> he doesn't know how to play the flute well. He lacks the skill to, to perform at the orchestra level, but he shamelessly does it anyway. That's vain conceit. And if selfish ambition arises from underestimating others, vain conceit arises from overestimating ourselves. We do that when we compare ourselves to others. We think we're superior because we have more knowledge or possess uncommon skills or have wider social network. This attitude of vain conceit is so dangerous because the world around us feeds it. Society and the media tirelessly tell us that we are special and that we deserve royal treatment. And if left unchecked, this gets to our head and we start looking down on people. We act in arrogant ways to others and the church, forgetting that we're all sinners. And if it wasn't for the grace of God, none of us deserve to be a part of God's family. I imagine we all have fallen prey to selfish ambition or vain conceit, vain deceit before. Thankfully, that doesn't end our belonging to church. Paul doesn't stop at what threatens our unity. He gives us the antidote to, dread, to treat those divisive, divisive behaviors in our hearts. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, he says, but in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. Humility is the cure to selfishness and arrogance. That's because humility promotes their exact opposite, self-denial, letting go of personal comfort or preference for the sake of others. Now, this should not be confused with false modesty. Humility is not feeling bad about privileges that you have or lowering yourself just for the sake of feeling good about making some sacrifices. Humility is not self-focused. It does not focus on what you have or what you can do. Humility is others-centered. It's about prioritizing the needs and the interests of others ahead of yourself. It's about sacrificing what may be rightfully yours in order to help meet the needs of others. This could be using one of your vacation days to help somebody move to a new house, or spending more time in the kitchen to prepare an extra meal for a family in need, or giving, to the gift, giving a gift to the Building for Growth building project. All these acts require humility. Are you denying yourself hard-earned vacation days, or rest, or money? All this in order to assist somebody else. Unfortunately, humility is the most unnatural thing for us as humans. And many will no doubt find pursuing it naive or idealistic. But if humility is the key to our unity, and it's the key to advance the gospel, and the gospel hinges on advancing it, then we have to make sure that we get it right. So how do we get that mindset? How do we develop a perspective that puts the needs of others ahead of our needs? This is what the second part of our passage looks at. Look with me at verse 5. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Paul tells the Philippians, if you want to master humility, you need to have the same attitude as Christ. If you want to preserve the unity of the church, 
in your relationship with one another, you must have the same mind as Christ, the same mindset as Christ. That's fascinating. The key to being selfless is not to think less of yourself, but to think more of Christ and his example. Proper humility is based on a reflection on, on the is based on a reflection on the incarnation and crucifixion of Jesus Christ. The fact that it's a mental adjustment means that anybody can do it. And so everybody has a role in preserving the unity of the church. In the verses that follow, Paul poetically describes what Jesus went through to reconcile us to God. These verses are some of the most studied passages in the Bible. So many books and songs and articles have been written about these wonderful verses because they contain fundamental truth about the deity of Christ. But Paul's main point here is to highlight Christ's selflessness as the ultimate example and model for humility. So with that in mind, let's look closely at, those be at this beautiful song. Who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. We understand from this that Jesus existed prior to his incarnation. There was a time when Jesus did not have a human body. In that period, he was always with God from the very beginning. He was and is unmistakably God. Jesus is not nearly God or like God, but not really. The language of being in the very nature God means that Jesus is what is essential to be God. Yet Jesus, yet despite being in every possible sense God, Jesus did not demand the status of God or try to grasp it. He did not have the mindset of selfish ambition. Rather, he was selfless to the core of his being, to the level of limiting himself by taking on a human form. Jesus did not consider being like God something to be used to his own advantage. And so he was willing to release that. Indeed, that's what he did. He made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. He did not stop being God, but he poured himself out. He emptied himself. He became powerless, empty of significance, of no reputation. He became nothing for the sake of the gospel. Jesus gave up the glory that he had with the Father from the beginning. And he became like us, human in every way except sin. That takes incredible humility. The journey from heaven, from the right hand side of the Father, to a time and place, to a time and place on earth that many of us can't imagine living through. That is a huge descent. And Jesus did not live in a palace when he was on earth. He lived like a servant without any honor or glory. That is remarkable humility. And that's the mindset that Paul wants us to have. Jesus gave up so much for the sake of the others, and we ought to do the same. This contrast with people in Philippi who operated out of vain conceit, 
They had nothing to brag about, but that did not stop them from bragging. Jesus had every reason to boast, but he did not out of humility. Adopt Jesus' attitude, not the attitude of arrogant believers, arrogant leaders, Paul writes. Jesus did not waver in his humility, but instead he went all the way to the point of death, death on a cross. He submitted to the will of the Father, which shows another dimension of his selflessness. He knew that his incarnation would lead to his crucifixion, but he obeyed, and he did not renounce the sacrifice he made. We tend to forget how dreadful the cross is, but we, remember, we must remember that death on a cross was highly scandalous. The cross was conceived as a shameful execution tool. And so seeing Jesus, the very God that created the universe, humble himself all the way to the cross is the perfect example that illustrates the extent of humility. Today, we're called to put on the mind of Christ. This is not always easy. Because each person has rights and privileges that they think are unchallengeable. For example, I'm entitled to full rest. And until I have that, and until I can reach, and until I have that, I cannot reach out to others. Or I need my alone time. And without that, I cannot get involved in any church activity. Or I'm too busy looking after my own stuff. I will help when I have those things sorted out. This is not always selfish reasoning. And that's why it's helpful to think of adopting the mindset of Christ as an ongoing process. We grow in our understanding of God's sacrifice and what is ours to keep and give. We each have our own emptying of self that we must consider. This means that no matter how old you are or how young you are, no matter how long you've been in faith, there is always room to grow in putting on the mind of Christ. We must regularly evaluate our decisions and life choices and check them against the gospel. Asking what would Jesus do is a handy way of doing this, but we must not forget why we do it. Otherwise, we get frustrated. Defending and advancing the gospel is what should motivate us, not accumulating a list of good works. Jesus humbled himself out of obedience to God's will of saving the world from sin. It was not a random act of kindness. Similarly, seeing the gospel spread out is what should motivate us to make the sacrifices and put the needs of others ahead of our own. What is encouraging is in the gospel, we also find forgiveness for our shortcomings. We can never fully imitate Christ or the example of Christ because he is sinless. But when we try, but when we try to be like Jesus and fail due to vain conceit or selfish ambition, we don't lose heart. We renew our commitment because we know that in Christ we are forgiven. This is a vindication. This is a vindication that we have in Christ and which Paul concludes this song with. So let's look briefly at verses 9 to 11. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord 
to the glory of God the Father. We see here that God exalts Christ to the highest imaginable place. And by doing so, he restores him to his eternal position. Jesus humbled himself and entered our human realm to save the lost, but he belongs to his throne in heaven. It's possible that few people might appreciate the humility of Christ, but still feel unsure about following his pattern, given the heavy price to pay up front and self-denial. Paul's, Paul's words here address those concerns in two ways. First, Paul reminds us that the self-emptying of Christ and his crucifixion were not punishment from God. This was part of God's plan from the beginning. God ordained in advance that Christ should suffer and die on the cross. And God also intended to raise Christ and exalt him as Lord of all. Just as it was predestined for Christ to suffer, it is predestined for him to rule as supreme authority. Paul is emphasizing that Christ will be glorified and will be given the name above all names. As such, we must not doubt the example of Christ and the mindset that that inspires. Secondly, in describing the full manifestation of Christ's rule, Paul is pointing to a future state. By doing so, he's lifting our eyes upwards and forward to Christ's return. When Christ comes back the second time, he will gather his people from all over the world, and they will join the great banquet and celebration, Christ's celebration over, for his triumph over sin and, sin and death. At that time, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. For Christians, this is something to look forward to, worshiping Jesus and bowing down to him as Lord. But even those who don't acknowledge Jesus as Lord now will be brought to their knees on that last day, but not as friends and children of God, but as his enemies, and he will judge them. Jesus will reign, will then reign as king forever, and God will be eternally exalted. That's the full gospel story. Therefore, we must learn to humble ourselves and be like-minded in anticipation of that joyous day when Christ returns. So to conclude, it's the gospel that makes the church special. The gospel is what differentiates us and makes us unlike any other collective. We are all violators of God's perfect law, and for that we deserve death. But because of God's mercies, he sent Jesus to die as a substitute in our place. And with Jesus' resurrection from the dead, we are given life, a new life, life that resembles Jesus' life, overflowing with love towards others and marked by submission to God. That's the gospel. The church is special because unlike the orchestra or any other group where you must possess certain skills to join, at church, everybody is welcome, and every person has an important role to play. You don't need to have special talents. Nobody will look at your resume or examine your personal history. You only need to believe the gospel. The gospel then unites us in being a community of transformed people, and God works through our unity to put the gospel on display and make it known further. 
but we have a responsibility to maintain our unity. Because if we're divided, if there's unresolved tension or competition or animosity between us, that will hurt our gospel witness. If we have a lot of disagreements that lead to conflict, people will doubt the power of the gospel to transform lives. If we don't put the interest of others ahead of our interest, people will be skeptical of what we proclaim. Do you see it? The advancement of the gospel may be threatened by our lack of unity. The best way, the only way, to avoid that is to be of one mind. That is the mind of Christ. If this is your first time in church, or the first time that you hear about this or about the gospel, I want to invite you to respond to God's love and to trust Jesus as your, as your savior from sin. Don't wait for that day when Christ returns and you end up meeting Jesus as the judge and you being his enemy. Ask for God's forgiveness today. And when you do, you'll be part of the only community that has eternal significance, the church. If you'd like to learn more about that or have any questions, come back again next Sunday or talk to one of the leaders after the meeting. And if you have already put your trust in Jesus and have committed your life to preaching Christ, I thank God for you. And I want to encourage you to keep that as the focus of your life. Filter everything that you do through the gospel. Strive to have everything, every decision you make and every thought that you have, everything that you say and do, be in service to the gospel. And remember that God saved us as individuals, but he saved us into a community. So let's take our unity very seriously. Let's put on the mind of Christ and learn from his humility how to put the interests of others ahead of our own. And may God help us all to do that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your love and for making it possible for us to be with you forever. Help us to make the, that gospel as the foundation on which we structure our lives. Help us to be like-minded so that your gospel is spread through us. Keep our eyes focused on Jesus so we can always have his mindset and perspective. We ask this in his precious name. Amen.